0: church, our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Uh, You can find our passage in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, if you don't have a Bible. And you can find that on page 70. And we're going to take all of Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 30. And chapter 30 is actually a semi-significant, well, we would say all of God's word is significant, but it's significant in the sense that it begins to wrap up this long section that we've seen thus far in Exodus about the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle and the priests serving in the tabernacle. Since chapter 25, through these very long chapters that we've gone through, God has been directing Moses to how to build this tabernacle and how he wants to be worshipped. Now, just to refresh your memory, I have a picture of that tabernacle up on screen for you. Uh, you can rem- if you have been with us at all for these past couple, I don't know, months, weeks, whatever, that we've taken to go through these, uh, these uh, passages, we remember that there's a tabernacle with a courtyard and upon entering into that tabernacle, the first thing you would see as a worshiper is that you would see this bronze altar for sacrifices. Further in would be the tent of meeting, which measured 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. And this, this tent of meeting is essentially a two-room two tent. Uh, the first room, the outer room, Uh, was a room containing a table and also a lamp, a table for the bread and also a lamp. Separating the outer room from the inner room was a curtain with images of a cherubim, cherubim woven on it, and in the inner room is the Holy of Holies where they would place the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God. And as we've been going through Exodus, we've seen chapters 28 and 29 address the people who are to work in the tabernacle, the priests, and how they were to be dressed, how they were to be ordained. And all these instructions are given because God is a very different God from all the other gods in the world in that God is making his dwelling place among Israel, among his people. See, God wasn't content. To simply bring them and rescue them out of Egypt. No, God's intent is to not only bring them out, but that the people might worship him and might dwell with him. And as we get to Exodus 30, God provides further instructions. As you kind of take a look in your Bibles, you're going to see different maybe subheadings there by the editors about an altar of basin, a census tax, you know, a a wash basin, an altar of incense, I'm sorry, and as well as anointing oil and incense. Now, as we get to chapter 30, uh, chapter 30 kind of puzzles some scholars of the Bible because of its placement. Uh, Chapters 25 through 27 dealt with construction and the furniture of the tabernacle. Chapters 28 and 29 talked about the priests. And now chapter 30 takes us again to furnishings within the tabernacle. And scholars are wondering, what's going on here? Why are we back to furnishings and basins and all these other things? And so some scholars simply consider this to be a passage of leftovers. It's kind of a way of Moses saying, oh, by the way, there's all these other things that, you know, I got to tell you about when it comes to the tabernacle. But I want to suggest to you that there is a definite logic to this placement. And that logic is this. Once the tabernacle has been set up, once the altar burnt, the, the bronze altar is ready for sacrifices, here we have an altar of incense and a census, and washing, and oil, all part of the worship that would happen for the people of God. All of these items that come next involve both priests and the people of God. Furthermore, as we see in chapter 30, as I hope we see this morning in chapter 30, that God wants to leave two reminders for his people. Two reminders for his people as they uh, are instructed in building this tabernacle and we'll get to those two reminders after we take some time to simply walk through our passage so as we've been kind of doing over the past couple weeks i'm just going to walk us through our passage and making some comments and then we'll wrap up with two reminders from the lord first is the altar of incense in verses 1 through 10 if you can follow along with me in exodus 30 it says you shall make an altar on which to burn incense you shall make it of acacia wood a cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of a case of wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the, tar- the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is, that is above the testimony, where I, shall, I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall not pour, you shall pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So this is in the outer room of the tent. What you have is a table, you have a lamp, and you have a third item, which is going to be this altar of incense. Like other items inside the tabernacle, it is wood and overlaid with gold now you remember everything inside the tab- inside the tent is gold everything of the outside furniture is made of bronze its craftsmanship and design is is pretty simple it's not that big it's 18 uh inches uh, uh square and about three feet high so not very big and it's very similar to the bronze altar in terms of that it has horns on it okay it's just much smaller and it's used exclusively for burning incense incense uh, material that wouldn't burn would make everything smell fragrant significantly it's placed in front of the veil that separates the ark of the covenant from the rest of the tent and Aaron must burn incense on it morning and evening morning and evening next we have the census tax which is not related to furniture but certainly related to worship look at verses 11 through 16. "'The Lord said to Moses, "'When you take the census of the people of Israel, "'then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord "'when you number them, "'that there be no plague among them when you number them. "'Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, "'half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary.'" The shekel is 20 geras. "'Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. "'Everyone who is numbered in the census "'from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering.'" the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the lord's offering to make atonement for your lives you shall take the atonement money from the people of israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that i may bring the people of israel to remembrance before the lord so as to make atonement for your lives so very sorry to say but taxes are biblical and it's uh Not to worry, though, it is a flat tax that we have here. It's the same for everybody, half shekel for everyone. Now, it's important to note that half shekel is not actually a coin. It's not uh, a—it's actually a weight. Um, And everyone who's to give it is to be 20 years old and upward from Israel. It doesn't say that it's only counting the men of Israel, but very likely it's only counting the men of Israel. The reason why is because if you look in the book of Numbers— it seems that it's very specific that a census is taken and only the men are counted. And in Numbers it says, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. So it seems to be a census to uh, measure the amount of, of men who are able to go off to war. And everyone gives this half shekel. It probably weighs less than an ounce, and it's probably less than an ounce of silver. But all these shekels, among all these 20 years old and up, would be, would be added together, and all that silver was for the upkeep of the tabernacle. Now, the bronze basin in verse 17 through 21 you shall also make a bronze of basin with its basin of bronze I'm sorry with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The basin is the last piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It went in the courtyard between the altar of sacrifice and the tent itself. When we're, we're not given a lot of information about this basin. We're not given any dimensions about it. We can only assume that it's round and it's enough to hold enough water to wash the hands and feet of the priests that are working in the tabernacle. But this was to wash, this was a ceremonial washing by the priests so that they could go about their work. They needed to wash their hands and their feet. It was a symbolic act that, needed, that they needed to be purified and made clean before they served the Lord. And finally, we see here anointing oil and incense. Look at verse 22. The Lord said to Moses Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests." This is an essential oil, you could say. a special blend of spices weighed probably almost 40 pounds. It featured expensive ingredients mixed and pressed to make a perfume. And once ready, it was to be applied to the tabernacle. Everything in the tabernacle got sprinkled a little bit with this anointing oil. And its aromatic scent signified that this whole place is set apart for the Lord. And same with the incense. The Lord says, Take sweet spices, Stacti and Onika and Galbanum. And we are not sure really what all these spices are uh, translated from Hebrew. But this is the best that our translators have done. Sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from the people. All right. Again, another special blend here of incense used exclusively for the altar of incense. So what do we do with all of these instructions that were given in Exodus 30? All of it seems a little strange to us, doesn't it? And it seems strange to us because it's not the world in which we inhabit. We are not people who regularly live in tents. All you campers out there, we are not people who regularly live in tents. We're not people who have these wash basins outside the tent and use oil and incense in our everyday lives. But what is more foreign to us than the physical elements is the conceptual world of the Exodus. What I mean by that is that as strange as tents and basins are when we're reading about these things, even more unusual... To us and to our culture at large, is that these elements underscore a foundational principle of Israelite worship. What's that principle? That God is to be feared. And this is the first reminder that God gives his people fear God, for he is holy. Look again at these instructions. Look at that altar of incense. Verse 9. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering, grain offering, or drink offering. And God says, if you're going to worship me, you better do it the right way. Incense only here. And what do we see later in the Bible in Leviticus? Nadab and Abihu go before the altar of incense. What do they do? They they offer up unauthorized, strange fire that the Lord had not commanded, and they were burnt to a crisp, consumed by God for their disobedience. See the warning concerning the census tax, verse 12. When you perform the census, do it the right way. Give the half shekel, give the ransom price. What does it say in verse 12? That there be no plague among them when you number them. There's a right way to take a census. And there's a wrong way to take a census. If you do it the wrong way, a plague will come. This is is exactly what happens in 2 Samuel. When King David takes the census. And a plague comes upon the people. And God's anger fell on Israel. Look at the bronze basin. It says in verse 21, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. You know, I'm always trying to tell my daughter, my youngest one, that she needs to wash her hands after she uses the bathroom. Why? That we might not get sick and she might not get sick. But here the consequences are that you may not die. God will strike you down, that's what it says. Verse 33, if you use the anointing oil for yourself or any outsider, you're to be cut off from the people. Why? Because God said no one else is to be using this oil. This oil is sprinkled all over the tabernacle, and if you make this and give away the secret recipe, you'll be cut off, put outside the camp, maybe even put to death. So if you're walking around, and someone gets a whiff of you, and you're like... What, what's that you're wearing? And you're like, oh, it's just load the tabernacle. You're put outside the camp. You're put outside the camp. You're cut off. Same thing goes for the incense in verse 18, verse 38. What does all this tell the people of God? Fear God, for he is holy. He is to be feared. He's not to be trifled with. We're not to fear God because God is peevish and he flies off the handle. We're not to fear God because he's like us, that he's temperamental or capricious. We're not to fear God because, oh, God is just always angry with us. That's just who he is. No, we're to fear God because he's holy and he is just and he is precise and he is clear. And he does not look upon disobedience as a light or trifling thing. Sometimes the reason why passages like this are so strange to us and we think God is overly specific, overly severe is because we have no framework for the fear of God in our lives. Perhaps we become so familiar with God that we start to play fast and loose with the things of God, especially sometimes when it comes to the things of worship. You know, within Christianity, there's something called the regulative principle. It says that the corporate worship of the church should be comprised of those elements that we can show to be appropriate from the Bible. Simply put, the principle says, let's worship God the way that he wants to be worshiped. And what we see from our passages this morning is that God absolutely cares about the way that he is worshiped, down to the way that we smell so we as a church make no apology here at Redeemer that we adhere to the regulative principle. We, do, we are not free to do whatever we want during worship. Rather, we must do what Scripture instructs and requires us to do. And at its heart, this principle is about freedom and not restriction. It's a freedom to worship a holy God the way he has made clear. The regulative principle frees us from cultural captivity. It frees us from scrambling, always trying to keep up with the latest trends. It frees us from trying to make our worship a, uh, you know, a boomer style worship versus a Gen X or Gen Z style of worship. It frees us from making sure that we know the latest movies and are able to put them on screen for everyone. No, it frees us from that. And what's more, it frees us from constant battles over preferences. You know, the regulative principle doesn't eliminate opinions. Every church is going to make a decision about style and what it's going to be like. Maybe the tempo of the music, so this, you know, or, or whatever it might be. But let's take, for example, music. You know, I remember as a young adult, I, I went to a conference, and uh, it was called the Resolved Conference. And the music was so good. It was really good. It was one of those where everyone was singing loud. It seemed like everyone's eyes were closed. It seemed like everyone was crying, you know. And I remember after the conference, I went back to my church. And uh, not this church, okay, so caveat. But we had a pianist and a, a mediocre vo- vocalist, uh, a slight, slightly offbeat drummer. And all of a sudden I felt like I can't be close to God right now. I needed to do some real honest heart searching at that moment about what made me feel close to God. And if my spiritual life was dependent on something that it shouldn't be dependent on. And the regulative principle, if I had known it, would have helped me there. The main concern isn't about the music that makes my foot tap all the time. My main concern is what God wants. It's what God wants. That we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as it says in Ephesians. God says, I want the most distinctive sound in our worship together to be the voices of my people singing to one another. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. But the bottom line is that we have an appropriate fear. We are to have an appropriate fear when we worship God. For he is holy. Think about the news of Christianity. God exists. Jesus exists. The Holy Spirit exists. The incarnation really happened. And Jesus died for sinners. And he rose again on the third day to give new life to anyone who would trust in him. And heaven and hell are real. And right now Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. And for all of this, we should be able to say, glory. These are staggering realities that we are a part of. When we come together to worship, this is what we are dealing with, one of the greatest and most weighty things in the entire world. And the last thing we should expect on Sunday is something casual or careless. We're not dealing with trivial matters on Sunday, and we should worship a holy God with joy and reverence, with awe. Fear God, for he is holy. A second reminder God gives his people from this passage. Be fragrant. Smell good. For you belong to God. The worship of God is not a trifling thing. Your lives are at stake, certainly. But notice, too, that God makes a way for his people to draw near if you go back to the census tax in verse 12 you notice that each person gives a half shekel as a ransom for his life to the lord you're looking at that you're like what and it's clearly here symbolic the payment of this price does not atone for sin you can't buy off god god says in isaiah you come to me there's a gift that i have for you salvation that you get without money without price Salvation and atonement comes only through blood, shed blood. Nevertheless, the ransom paid during the census is called an atonement money. And although it did not atone for the people's sins, it was a reminder that they belonged to God. It was a reminder that they belonged to God and not to themselves. It was a reminder they were bought with a price. Ransomed out of Egypt to make known the name of God. And this ransom finds its fulfillment with the coming of Jesus who says... That Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's why Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. First Peter 1.18 says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The greatest news in all the world is that the Son of God has paid the price for your condemnation and my condemnation. The gospel of Jesus Christ that God offers to everyone who believes is that the death of his son is the payment for sin and guilt and condemnation. Ransomed to glorify God and washed too. You see that with the wash basin, with the bronze basin? Why are the priests required to wash? Haven't they already washed in their ordination ceremony? Yes, but they are continually washing as a sign of their sanctification. They need to continually be sanctified by God. And again, we find washing as we just sung to be what can wash away my sins. We find the fulfillment of washing coming through in Jesus Christ who washed his disciples' feet and said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It's why the church in Corinth were all kinds of sinners. Paul says, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's why Titus 3 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by the righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You have been ransomed and washed. And what's all that for? That you might smell good. That the people of God might be a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Look at this anointing oil. That's what this anointing oil is all about. The smell of the anointing oil is about being set apart, holy unto the Lord. It's a scent that's associated with the tabernacle. It's a scent saying, I've been in the presence of the Almighty we understand that a fragrance can be associated with people, right? We understand that because you can purchase a lovely, which is a perfume, by Sarah Jessica Parker. You can smell like Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker. If you don't know who that is, you can purchase a perfume by, called Cloud by Ariana Grande. And, of course, you can always buy Jennifer Aniston by Jennifer Aniston. I'm sure all of you have memories of people that you associate with a smell. In our home, every time Grandma and grandpa, grandpa come stay with us, they bring with us maybe what my son would call a pungent smell. And we've had visitors at our home, and they've visited with my Grandma with Grandma and Grandpa, and they said to me once, This smell reminds me of my grandma in Taiwan. (laughs) Smell has a particular impact on us. It takes us to a particular place and it sticks with us. And what is the Lord saying here? It's this aroma should only bring to mind one thing, one place, one person. And those who are Christ's in 2 Corinthians 2.15 are an aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and an aroma of death to those who are perishing. One scent that can be interpreted in two different ways. I wonder if you have felt this impact on the people you're around because you're to have a scent on you. You're to have a heavenly BO. You are to smell like Christ. We are the royal priesthood anointed with oil. We are the smelling salts of this world, awakening people to the glories of the gospel. A fragrant aroma before the Lord. So let me close with this as we begin to wrap up. How can you smell good before God? How can you smell good before God? Well, actually... Our passage helps us, doesn't it? The altar of incense is really an altar of prayer. Think of where the altar is placed. It's placed right next to the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. In other words, it's in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of grace, the place where God answers prayer. Over and over in Scripture, incense is associated with prayer. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. In Luke 1, when Zechariah, as a priest, goes and and works and does his priestly work in the temple, he is actually before the altar of incense and the multitude of people there at that time is described in Luke 1 as outside praying at the hour of incense. Rome, uh, Revelation 8.3 says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the, Lord, before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints arose before God from the hand of the angel. In God's economy, the sights and smells of the sweet aroma wafting into heaven symbolize the prayers according to the throne of God, coming before the throne of God, ascending to the throne of God. So how can we smell good? There's numerous ways that we can talk about this. But one way is to come before God humbly in prayer. Christian, when you pray... God says, that smells good. I like it anytime you come to me in prayer. Because in prayer, God is showing himself to be all sufficient. It is in prayer that we show that this world does not depend on our strength, but the strength of God. God finds it fragrant when we come and bring our prayers before him and cast all our anxieties upon him. God is worshiped when we come to him with all our impossible situations and we trust in him and plead with him. And church, yes, fear your God. Fear this God that also says, come near with me with all your prayers because that causes me to be well pleased. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and we ask, O oh Lord, that our lives would be a fragrant offering up to you, that we would give everything up on the altar, and that we might be a pleasing aroma to you. And we do pray, Lord. And we know, Lord, though, you are a precise and righteous and just God, yet you say to your people, "Come." and pray those who have been redeemed those who have been washed can come freely and bring our, their incense before you and so lord we pray that we would be more and more dependent upon you that you would glorify yourself and that we would be a pleasing aroma before you we pray this in jesus name amen